You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. I understand there were some audio problems at the beginning of the service. Um, I apologize to those of you who are online and may have have not heard the fantastic jokes that I said during the opening. Um, just imagine that I said the funniest thing you could imagine, and it was probably something like that. Um, and a, a warm welcome as well. So feel very welcomed here this morning um, because um, I was doing that as well. Um, on April 19th, 1995, MacArthur Wheeler walked into a bank in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, held up a gun, and demanded cash from the teller. Immediately after leaving, he walked into another nearby bank and did the same thing. The case didn't take the police very long to solve because Wheeler wore no mask, which is an oddity at at all in these days, Um, so he was easily identified from the security footage. Even so, when the police knocked on his door later that night, he was astonished that they had found him. But I wore the juice, he exclaimed. You see, Wheeler was something of an amateur chemist. He knew that lemon juice could be used to make invisible ink, and so he thought that maybe if he put the juice on his face, it would make him invisible to cameras. A botched test with a Polaroid camera confirmed his suspicions, so he slathered lemon juice on his face, tried his best to keep his eyes open despite the stinging, and went off to rob a pair of banks. His mistakes were so ridiculous that it made a couple of social psychologists sit up and take notice. Wheeler wasn't mad or delusional, just very, very wrong about how lemon juice works, but he was confident enough in his misconception to rob two banks, even though that mistake would mean the loss of his freedom and and being taken away to jail. And the psychologist wondered, was this unmerited confidence unique to this man or a more general human phenomenon? And as it turns out, Wheeler's misplaced confidence, though extreme, is not really at all uncommon. Beginners in almost any discipline overrate their level of expertise. They simply don't know how much they don't know. It's only after significant study that most people come to understand how much is left to learn. You may have heard of this as the Dunning-Kruger effect, because those were the two psychologists that studied Wheeler and then did some follow-up on this. You you sometimes see it portrayed as a curve, where it shows like experience on one axis and confidence on the other. And right at the beginning of experience, there's this really high spike where you're really confident that you know what's going on, and then it falls off until you actually become a real expert and starts to go back up again. Um, But it also, you could turn back the, the clock to 1709, and listen to what Alexander Pope wrote about the matter, where he said that a little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not the Pyrian spring. There shallow draughts intoxicate the brain, and drinking largely sobers us again. And you don't even have to wait until the 1700s to see how this plays out. Peter exhibited the same sort of overconfidence in the first century when he thought that he was an expert on what it meant to be the Messiah. He had some reason for confidence. He'd been following Jesus since the beginning of his ministry. He'd obeyed without question when Jesus called him to be a disciple. 
He had listened to Jesus teach in the synagogues with authority. He had witnessed the exorcisms and the healings. And he had even been the one to declare with certainty that Jesus was, in fact, God's anointed. In all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ happened shortly before the transfiguration account that we read today. The longest account in Matthew 16 includes Jesus' affirmation that Peter's understanding was given to him by the Father and that the church would be built upon Peter and his confession. We're not told how Peter reacted to hearing Jesus affirm his understanding of being the Christ, but he must have felt that he had a pretty good grasp on who Jesus was and what it meant to be the Messiah because it only took a couple of days later where Jesus told him that he had to suffer and die as the Messiah, and Peter rebuked him and said, no, you're wrong. That can't be true. That's not what it means to be the Messiah. And of course, Jesus' response was, get behind me, Satan. It didn't take very long at all for Peter to go from, on this rock I will build my church, to get behind me, Satan. Because Peter misjudged how much he knew about the Christ. And it led him into hubris and folly when he tried to convince Jesus that he would not need to suffer. These two accounts, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ and his complete misunderstanding about what that meant, form the backdrop upon which the story of the transfiguration takes place. Our gospel reading today opened up with, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. That after six days is pointing back to Peter's confession and his misunderstanding of what Jesus said. In all of the gospel accounts, these, in, these instances are tied closely together. They're connected because they all form a part of, an under, of, of a whole story of how Peter is coming to understand what it means to be the Christ, what it means to know who Jesus is. It's not clearly stated why they were going away, why they were drawing to this mountain in the gospel text, but given the other times in the gospels that Jesus withdrew from the crowds, I think it's a fairly safe assumption that they were going up to pray. It also means that this account mirrors Jesus going with those same three disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And like the Garden of Gethsemane, in Luke's account of the Transfiguration, he says that when they went up onto the mountain, the disciples fell asleep. They apparently had a thing about not being able to stay awake while Jesus was praying. But when they woke up, they saw the face of Jesus shining like the sun and robes that were dazzling white. They saw him talking with Moses and Elijah, two prophets who seemed to have stepped out of history and legend. And their first reaction was, I think, very sensible. They were terrified. But when then Peter opened his mouth, which is always a dangerous part in the Gospels, and showed that he didn't understand still to whom he was speaking. His suggestion was that they build three tents for Jesus, is the way that our, the translation that we read this morning re reads it. Um, and that's not quite as ridiculous as it first sounds. Peter's not suggesting some sort of wilderness survival practice where he's going to build shelters for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Um, he has in mind the shelters that made of branches and leaves that were associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a harvest festival that was also seen as a, came to, had come to be seen as a sign of the Messianic age. 
The tents then, also called booths or tabernacles, would have been intended to honor Jesus and his prophetic companions. But putting Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah, no matter how distinguished they are, misses the point of what he just saw. Jesus is the one who was transfigured, standing there shining with light. Jesus is the one who had the dazzling white robes, not Moses and Elijah. Jesus is the son who displays God's glory. That's what Peter needed to see, and that's what Peter kept missing, even as he walked with Jesus, even as he listened to his teaching, even as he saw the healings. He saw him as the Messiah. He saw him as perhaps ushering in God's kingdom, but he did not understand that he was the son who himself showed the glory of God. But God is gracious, including with those of us who are thick-headed and stubborn, and he wasn't going to let Peter miss it this time. The same voice that spoke to Jesus at his baptism, saying, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, now spoke directly to the disciples. A voice rang out from heaven, saying, This is my beloved son. Notice the change. At first, at the baptism, he told Jesus, You are my beloved son. Those words were primarily for the son himself. Now he's addressing the disciples directly. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. God wanted to draw the disciples' attention to who Jesus is and remind them all, especially Peter, that they are to listen and obey. This is the best end of an argument that I've ever heard of, of the voice of God literally coming down from heaven and saying, listen to him. He knows what it means to be the Christ. He knows what it means to be the Messiah. You listen and obey. Now, if the path of discipleship happened in a neat line, Peter would be a changed man after this moment. But the truth is, he still fumbled through following Jesus. As far as we know, he joined with the other disciples in arguing who was the greatest. That's one of the, the next things that they all do. That they get together and try to argue which one of them is the greatest. He turned the children away from Jesus when they came for a blessing. He still wasn't willing to accept that Jesus was going to suffer and die. Not really. In the garden, when, the, when they came to arrest him, Peter pulled out a sword and cut off a servant's ear. He wanted to, to sort of provoke this into the violent resistance that he had imagined it being in the first place. He promised he would die on Jesus' behalf and then denied him three times, unwilling to even admit that he knew the man. But though Peter's encounter with God's glory did not create an immediate and total turnaround, and I am eternally thankful for that when I think of my own story, of the times that I have encountered God and realized that I still fumble to follow him as well, it did plant a seed of understanding. It moved him a little further along in that curve of experience and confidence where his, his understanding of the knowledge of Jesus, he began to understand that he didn't understand everything that both the Father and Jesus are so far beyond his comprehension that he would always be a beginner in understanding God. And this is an important step for all of us to take. No matter how long we've been following Jesus, no matter how much theology we've studied, no matter how many books we've read, no matter how holy our lives were seem, may seem, no matter how many hours we've spent in prayer, we are all beginners in understanding God. We will contemplate God for all eternity. 
but we will never fully understand him. But fortunately, neither our eternal joy, fortunately, our eternal joy does not depend on how much we know about God. Our eternal joy depends on how well we know God. And there's a significant difference here. We can know about people, or we can know about God from a distance. I can look up a Wikipedia article on any famous person in just a few minutes and know a variety of details about their life. I can read a biography of someone, maybe even someone that has has given their journals and notebooks and their letters to be poured through and know a variety of details, more perhaps more detail about them than I would know of you than if I just sat and talked with you for a long time. I can even learn some quite intimate details about people that way. But there's no substitute for actually spending time with a person and developing a relationship with them. Knowing about a person is not the same thing as being in a relationship with a person. Dating is more than just quizzing somebody over and over again until you come up with enough facts about them that you say, okay, I think I know you well enough that we can enter into a relationship now. That's not what it's about. When we merely learn about God, the temptation is always going to be to use our knowledge of him to hold power over him so that we can tell him what he can or can't do. That's what Peter tried to do with Jesus when he told him he would not need to suffer and die. He admitted he knew that Jesus was the Christ, but he tried to use that knowledge to be able to command Jesus, to tell him what to do, to how he should act and behave. He thought that he knew how the Messiah should behave, and he told him so. But when we develop a relationship with God, instead we'll grow in love. We'll grow in awe. We'll grow in wonder at the presence of God. We'll understand how much greater than us he is, and we will grow in obedience. And we'll come to understand that all of our knowledge of him comes by grace. Peter or Jesus told Peter this at the time that he made his confession, that this comes not from you. This gift of, of this confession of your knowledge that I am the Christ comes from the Father himself. It is a gift of grace that you know this about me. And that is always how the understanding of God comes to us. It comes as a gift. It comes as grace. And so that way we can take joy and delight in getting to know more of who he is. But our goal is never mere knowledge. Our goal is relationship. At some point, Peter was able to look back upon this mountaintop experience and process that. He was able to understand that the glory of God made visible to him in Jesus, in that moment on the mountaintop and in the entire life that he had walked with him, was a gracious gift, and it shook him free of his sense of control. It invited him into relationship. And he saw that the goal of that relationship was to be like Moses and Elijah on the mountain, standing face to face with the glory of God, enjoying his presence, and growing in the knowledge of his purposes. He tried to explain some of this when he wrote Second Peter. We heard his explanation today in our gospel reading, that in that Basically, he says the whole first chapter is him looking back upon this moment and reflecting on what he has learned about the glory of God and how we are to respond to it. In the reading that we had today, he had given up control. We saw that when he said, I 
will make every effort so after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things because Jesus has told me that I will not be with you for very long. Even his own life at this point, he really is willing to give up to whatever the purposes of God are. And he also recognized that um, it was grace that allowed him to see what he saw about Jesus. He said, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we have been eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. And he reminds them that all prophetic messages come from God, not from human knowledge or inspiration. It's from God's inspiration, the Holy Spirit working in the one who writes. He begins to understand that he's in relationship. He's the recipient of grace and the revelation of God. And that changes his perspective on how to approach God and what it means to live a life according to what God has called him to. But all of this, the, the, the passage that we read, we have the therefore that begins the whole thing, and we have the for pointing back to the earlier parts of the passage, and what was he writing to them in the earlier parts of the passage? He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Oh, I read that part already. Um, he said, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us, to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, that's really dense. There's a lot to unpack in those, in those couple verses, so we'll go back and look at it a little bit more slowly. He begins by recognizing that everything comes by grace, even knowledge. There's no him growing as an expert. It's receiving from God. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He recognizes that it's coming from the divine power of God given to him. And this is the approach that he understands to take to, the, to his engagement with God. Notice the difference between how he understood Jesus. He's now coming with humility, recognizing that anything and everything he knows comes as a gift from God, rather than coming as something that he can claim as his own and then hold over God. It's all gift. He sees that he called us to his own glory and excellence. So it says that he has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, or his own glory and goodness, you might see in some translations. Peter begins to understand that the reason that we see these signs of Christ's glory, the reason that he was given this vision, is to draw him into relationship. He's being called to his own glory, through the glory that is revealed to him. This is the way of our psalm that, was, that we read today. We're from glory to glory. Or our song, we sang a song that talked about being called from glory to glory. And this is the way of things. This is how things work. We are given glimpses of the glory of God to draw us into relationship. 
And this is really important because this counters the sort of Gnostic gift of knowledge that people will often talk about, that as if somehow we're given some sort of special knowledge that is just that is just to us, that is hidden away. The glory of God is given to all, it's revealed to all. That's what Peter is telling us, that he has seen it face to face. He has seen the, the glory of God, and he is recounting the story to us so that all may partake in this gift of glory. And then the knowledge that we have of him leads to his promises. It says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. The knowledge is given for the sake of the promise. We need to know about him so that we can grow in trust, so that we can grow in hope, so that we can understand the promises of God that are given to us. And all of this is given as a, the goal so that we can be partakers in the, of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. We are to be people who can be like Moses and Elijah that we can stand with God face to face. But we can't do that right now. We're sinful beings. Elijah, in the reading that we had from the Old Testament, when he went to God, had to wrap his face in his cloak because he couldn't turn his eyes upon him, even as God had invited him to be in his presence. He knew he was not holy. Moses, the first time that he came to the burning bush and had this encounter with Yahweh, took off his shoes because he knew he was on holy ground and averted his eyes. Later, he would go up on Mount Sinai. And even there, in this encounter, he's told he can look at the back of God. Not, he can't look at God face to face because he would die. But now he stands with Jesus face to face in the light of the transfiguration as Jesus shows us the glory of God and he's able to stand and face to face with him and be in relationship with him, to talk with him. And this is the goal that we are called to. We are given the signs of glory so that we can stand in the glory of God. And then this becomes our motivation for leaving behind sin. Peter talks in the rest of chapter one about a life of holiness, but it's holiness that is preparing us for this relationship, for this ability to stand in divine glory, to partake in the divine nature, to be like the Trinity, who are able to look at one another face-to-face, -face, and God invites us into that same sort of face-to-face -face relationship with him. But he says, before you can do this, before you can stand in my glory, I also have to make you holy. You can't do that yourself either, but I will make you holy so that you can partake in, what, in the grace that I want to give you, the relationship that I'm drawing you into. And this is really important as we're preparing ourselves for Lent as we're moving into Ash Wednesday and we're going to talk about sin and confession and penance. And it's all the grace of God calling us to a confession because he wants to draw us into relationship with him. And he is going to work in us to make us people who are holy so that we can stand face to face in the glory of God. Holiness begins and ends with God's glory. It is the glimpse of his glory given to us in our experiences and what is revealed to us as Peter writes about the transfiguration, as he talks to us about, as the scripture reveals to us the, the work that Jesus did in his life, as we look upon the cross and the resurrection. This is the glory of God revealed to us. 
and it is given to us so that we can be drawn into a greater glory where we see him and talk to him face to face. This is the image at the very end of all things in Revelation. It's the people gathered together in a city that there is no, no need for the sun because the light of God is there always. There is no night. We are always face to face in relationship with God from glory to glory. The glory of God draws us in so that we may be lifted up to people who can stand in the glory and relationship of God forever and ever and ever. The taste of glory that we get now is to whet our appetite for the final gift that God is giving us. He's growing in us, making us people who can be that, who can be with him. This is the goal of our walk with God. This is why we look for glimpses of his glory. This is why what we hope for, even when we experience it at times, we're gathered together in worship, where we feel the Spirit come upon us and we recognize the glory of God in this place. It is preparing us. It's a gift now for what we can have now, but preparing us for even more later. This is our hope, what we're heading towards as the people of God. If for some reason this doesn't excite you, <laughs> then I encourage you to pray for God to give you a glimpse of his glory now. Because this is what he does. This is his grace given to us to give us glimpses of his glory now so that he can draw us in and give us the fullness of his glory one day. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.